Hello and welcome to the sixth and final installment of this season of Not Your Babushka's RSJ. We've come so far. In our first couple of episodes, our storytelling focused on what makes us us as RSJs in this part of the world, with immigration stories and a legacy of strength and resilience. And in episodes three and four, we looked at how intention setting from our RSJ context surfaces shared values of rallying around our community's most vulnerable. What's interesting about this kind of support is that before you can activate your mutual responsibility with others, you have to be in relationship with them first. Last episode, we connected with stories of that kind of activation around Arevu in our communities. We gave you a taste of how JDC practiced this in the former Soviet Union and the inspired actions individuals take globally and locally. On today's episode, we continue this exploration of the potent combination of setting intentions plus values plus action. JDC Entwine works to support a generation of young Jews who lead and live a life of action with global Jewish responsibility at its core. We offer transformative experiences that allow you to access global Jewish communities and stories and to serve those in need. Entwine is an initiative of JDC, aka The Joint, as our families knew it. Today, it's the leading Jewish humanitarian organization in the world. And we partner with and are supported by Genesis Philanthropy Group to produce experiences specifically for Russian-speaking Jews. Like the joint's approach to Jewish education in the FSU, in which they design introductory access points for Jewish education that the Soviet state separated us from, so too might North American RSJs need customized access points when it comes to philanthropy. We have these interesting circumstances where our parents were beneficiaries of aid in our extraction from an oppressive state, and now we're North Americans, many of us privileged to be able to give back. And because of our fresh immigration stories, we don't yet have generations old traditions of practicing philanthropy passed down as wealth is gradually established. Still, this doesn't automatically mean that RSJs and philanthropy don't mix. I spoke with JDC board member and fellow RSJ Ed Mermelstein to talk about how RSJs approach philanthropy. I wanted to know how he got involved so we could identify these opportunity spaces in our own RSJ stories. Ed Mermelstein's array of professional projects includes roles as a luxury real estate consultant, foreign investment advisor, attorney at law, media pundit and developer. And in addition to his service on the JDC board, he is also chairman of the Council of Jewish Emigre Community Organizations, a member of the Board of Overseers for the NYU Department of Arts and Sciences, president of the International Search and Rescue Org Zaka, and serves as a mentor to the Young Jewish Professionals Real Estate Network based in New York City. I was lucky enough that um, somebody brought me in. Um, in fact, there were more than a few people that brought me in, but um, once you start experiencing that um, common feeling amongst uh, immigrants and refugees that came to the United States and sharing that common experience, you start to understand what we've been missing and why we should be getting back together and creating this new common history for ourselves. Um, and there's been this conversation you pointed out uh, when we started the conversation about uh, Russian-speaking Jews not really being engaged in the philanthropic world. Uh, they're not givers. Well, that's because they were never taught that. Uh, that that's, that's built into the fabric of the communities 
in the United States or other parts of the world. We didn't have that in Ukraine. We didn't have that in Russia. We didn't have that in Belarus. Nobody taught us that. So you you only knew that you were Jewish, and that's it. But uh, the concept of philanthropy doesn't exist in that part of the world up until the last maybe 10, 15 years at best. So people are slowly learning that in Moscow today, in Kiev today. But they're learning it very differently than how learned it here in the United States. So it's it's interesting to watch how things develop in other parts of the world um, as people get involved in their community. Um, so I've, I've enjoyed watching that as well. Yeah. Um, something that stood out to me that you said was um, that a good businessman does philanthropy. It's kind of like part of the culture. So just in terms of a little bit uh, more history, uh, great thing about this country uh, that we live in in the united states philanthropy is part of the fabric because our government created that um, incentive uh, whether it's um, uh, through the community uh, but more so uh, been created by um, a tax incentive where where that doesn't exist in many other parts of the world so that's also a major difference that other people, uh, whether it's in Russia or Ukraine, they don't understand that because that that aspect doesn't exist within their tax structure. So that aside, um, what uh, what uh, sort of started pulling me um, in uh, to this community were just individuals, friends um, that uh, were working uh, in uh, as lay leaders uh, or uh, working in uh, the organizations uh, such as UGA that has done an amazing job over the years uh, in places like New York and and other major cities uh, where there are uh, similar umbrella organizations that build communities. Um, these are the people that start the bull rolling, start the education process. Uh, many of them were immigrants um, like myself. Um, and then they engage one person, and that one person starts to engage someone else through an educational process of some sort, but also um, just it's a new experience for most people uh, because it, it's just such a foreign concept if you've never been involved in it. So um, that's that's sort of how all of these uh, things start. And um, it doesn't take much to capture somebody. Once they're captured uh, with that mindset, they, they want to do it because they see what they get out of it. Uh, you, you get out of giving uh, a lot more than uh, you get a lot more back than what you give out. So, it, and that concept is is not a natural concept for most people. That uh, when you give, whether it's your time or your money, uh, what you get back is much much greater. Um, and until you go through that process, you don't realize uh, that you're being selfish by doing these things. Hmm. Um, Can you give an example? Um, 
example. So I am on the board of the JDC, and um, one of the things uh, that I was able to do within the last couple of years, uh, this was before COVID, um, I was visiting uh, Russia and I was visiting Ukraine, and uh, this was uh, when I was just being introduced uh, as a potential board member in the JDC. They had me uh, visit one of uh, the people that uh, JDC uh, helps uh, both in Ukraine and uh, in Russia. And when you go and visit someone who's in their 70s, 80s, uh, most of these people are quite sick and blind and they have someone that comes to their home that's being paid by the JDC, bringing them food, taking care of them. Uh, these are the people that weren't able to leave for the United States and, and get the care and the treatment that, uh, that they would experience in the U.S. And the fact that uh, we were able to come to the U.S. because of many of these organizations and coming full circle, being able to go visit uh, these people that are being helped by this organization that first brought us to the United States is just so rewarding. And uh, that experience is uh, something that's hard to describe because uh, all, all the history and the feelings um, going back to our initial immigration process uh, when I was a little boy and uh, remembering all the stories that my parents were telling me about that whole process, how they got out of uh, the country that uh, we left. And fast forward you know, almost 40 years later to be able to experience that by going back and seeing what would have been if we wound up staying there. Uh, so, but for these organizations, how our lives would be different. Having that experience and uh, knowing that you can now help somebody that wasn't as lucky is is just it's a very rewarding um it's a very rewarding thing it's a really beautiful story thanks for sharing that do you have advice for young professionals who you know didn't grow up with this culture of philanthropy what are some things that they can pursue um if this is they're feeling that perhaps this is a direction they can move in and also for those who aren't feeling that yet Sure. Um, I, I think the simplest uh, answer is uh, find something um, that is of interest to you uh, within the Jewish philanthropic world and get involved, uh, whether it's a mentorship program that um, it was built by a Jewish organization, uh, whether it's uh, some sort of a cultural program in, um, in your uh, synagogue or JCC, uh, just get involved, try something new, try something that um, is a little bit out of your comfort zone, and uh, just see how that experience, see how that experience affects you. Give it some time. Don't don't just try it once. So give it give it some time and see how uh, it enriches your life and how. Well, all I could say is from my personal experience what it's done for me. Um, and I, I believe it's made me 
happier. It's made me a better person. It's made me a better father, and hopefully a better husband. Um, so these these are the things that change your life for the better. Um, give it a shot. So how will you approach Ed's homework? Maybe seeing an updated, nuanced picture of young RSJ's relationships to philanthropy would be helpful. I knew that because of her unique perspective across global RSJ experiences, Moscow-born, Brooklyn-raised Yana Tomacheva would be on the pulse. She's Senior Director of RSJ Programming at Moisha House, a global Jewish community building initiative. So what do you make of this statement that RSJs don't do philanthropy? So because you don't see the same type or the same frequency of, let's say, gifts from young adult RSJs to a Jewish organization, for example, does not mean that they are not investing, whether it's financially or otherwise, in something that they care about. Adult RSJs definitely invest, and it might look different. Why differently? What are some different things that set us apart from, let's say, you be a young American Jew who's approaching philanthropy? back to the immigrant upbringing, we may feel like we still need to and want to, but also need to support our families in many ways, especially, let's say, financially, families we have here, families we have back in the, where we came from in the former Soviet Union. So that's one thing. And the other point is, I think, just the, we can't put the same approach to all different kinds of groups of people when it comes to philanthropy. And what in your experience have you identified to be the right ingredients for a young professional RSJ approaching philanthropy? So one thing about RSJs and young, again, like young adult RSJs is needing a sort of a personal connection or personal experience to engage in philanthropy, um, a really personal connection point. So I think we've seen, I see New York and there's, you know, what people invest, whether it might be certain programs or like birthright Israel troops, they're, they're you know, they're, kids went to Jewish day schools, community centers, organize like whatever kind of they feel they've had some kind of stake in, whether they've participated in it, somebody they know have participated in it, it's part of their story. It was an organization that helped them get here. Like whatever it is that they are connected to in a real way, trust is a really big deal, which I think for anyone who's a philanthropist at any age, so I guess part of trust comes from a personal connection or having the skills to assess and understand what is organization, how they even use their money, um, how this takes priority over what else I have going on. So I think that's for any philanthropist. So to repeat back, RSJs, like most philanthropists, need to establish trust through a personal connection to the causes and the organizations that they'd be giving to. So I think the personal connection is the big one. I also think about the other side of, so we're thinking about the giving, right? There's the other part of who asks. Who asks or how that, does the ask and how that relationship is actually cultivated, right? Like a big part of philanthropy, like we often think, right? It's just, let me ask you for money for this. That's like the last step in an actually really long process of, you know, cultivate, cultivating and stewarding relationships, building that. That can take years for a lot of, individual donors, for organizations, for foundations, a lot of times it needs to be, quote unquote, their own, right? How we can build our relationships and how quickly, because we're coming from the same understanding and how honest 
an RHJ can be with another RHJ, someone either in the RHJ community, that experience with the RHJ community, who's just well-versed in these nuances and mentality, a same level, not a same level of understanding, not putting themselves on a pedestal to have real conversations. So if you're not trusted and respected, you might as well just go talk to somebody else. So it's kind of who is making the ask or who is building the relationship and also how it's being done. You know, we can't apply the same method that we might, that we are able to apply. You know, it's a family who has been engaged like an American Jewish family where philanthropy runs for generations and it's a value they grew up with. We cannot have that same kind of approach. So it doesn't mean one is worse and one is better, but it means changing the narrative for those who are interested in this. And the way you have to come to the way we understand this group is not, you know, they're all bad and disengaged and uninterested and aren't interested in philanthropy. And that's the first thing that has to change. Thinking about understanding, meeting people where they're at and even seeing how we approach. And we have to diversify those, appro those approaches across different groups, not only the RSJ community, but this is just also one of the communities where there's, a lot of philanthropic potential. It's not the case that RSJ philanthropy is just not happening. If you look at trends in the past decade of RSJ giving, you will see a huge, huge increase um, from what it was just a decade ago. So it's definitely not in that narrative anymore of RSJs aren't giving at all, right? And our reality has changed because, right, it's been a lot of times kind of the mass immigration here and people have had time to establish themselves and so forth and be integrated in communities in different ways. Like I said, Yana has a global lens when it comes to RSJs and was able to illuminate trends in the FSU as well. Across Russia, across Ukraine, Kazakhstan, you know, I'm just looking at the FSU. I will say it's also changed and improved um, because everybody, again, the past couple of decades Right, huge Jewish revival, Jewish engagement arrival. We're just looking at the Jewish community. You know, people are growing up with that more. So, kind of the first period was just establishing yourselves, then connecting to yourself with identity. And now we have everyone who's alumni of every program who are really successful. The global community is more global, so everyone's more connected, it's open. There's definitely, um, and so because of so much, I was like Jewish engagement, whether in the local organizations or international organizations like JDC, people talk about philanthropy way more. So it's definitely more part of the discourse and that's changed. So the fact that we can talk about it, do it on any level and that it's in the discourse, that's changed. So I feel um, the way we can talk about it has definitely, I've seen a lot of progress there. Something that Ed pointed out to me Tax breaks are a big part of why people do philanthropy too. The tax break is definitely a good point. Um, and again, I think it goes back to what level we're also talking about philanthropically and who's able to assess that. Like, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm interested in certain things myself personally. You know, I want to see myself sitting on a board. I want, you know, I want to be there. And I understand that I don't come from a, from a family of philanthropists and I don't come from wealth and nor do I have that wealth right now, right? Um, and I don't have the same family background. I don't have someone who's going to show me how to do that um, or guide me to do that in this one way. So here I am, I have the desire and I have the expertise and the knowledge around like nonprofits 
and my path is going to look completely different to the access points I have, the eligibility I have to sit somewhere and donate. Right, and then if we're hopping back to the FSU. Um, so again, North America is different, and I think who we're looking at in Russia is also different. So am I looking at, there's definitely more high-level philanthropists, sure, more organizations, sure, um, across Russia at least. Um, a lot of what we see is also one-sided philanthropy there, right? We see high-level donors on missions coming, right? And then the way that people interact with them and how they get ready for missions or, you know, the support and the plaques and those organizations and people do give back to that and they love it and interacting with that. Um, so my question is just more, how do we diversify that picture of philanthropy? When I'm looking at individuals and thinking about the Moisha House community, right? People who are in their 20s, you know, we have a peer-led campaign in Moisha House every year. We call it the We Are campaign. Every single Moisha House participates across the world. That's over 120 cities, right? Who give and who they fundraise from their community, from themselves, um, from the young adults. And I think one of the ways that we see us still see some challenges and maybe just differences is a the dollar amount is different, right? So what twenty dollars is to me in New York and what twenty dollars is to my peer in Kiev is completely not the same thing. And so them feeling of either a that's just a bigger deal around a certain amount of money or connecting the importance of philanthropy to the dollar amount. And that can be something that's difficult to, you know, to change. Um, and that's something that we work on changing a lot. So we kind of can say how this $1, $5 matters and what the act of giving does and what, and again, the process of philanthropy. Again, how I said earlier, it's not just about the ask, that final step. It's the same thing here. It's not about the monetary gift. It's about the fact of there are different ways to contribute to being a part of something. Philanthropy and dollars is one of those ways. Um, there is a way of how you do it. So the fact that Moisha House leaders, our residents, share the story of themselves and of what Moisha House is and the impact for people who are involved to feel ownership over it and not just like participating in it, but a real part of it. One of those ways is through philanthropy, right? And that's changing a cultural perspective of just the dollar amount is what matters and all that matters and just matters so that, you know, we can grow and put it into the budget, but that's not the only way. So that's where we, we do see progress and that's still what we're really working on. It's changing that narrative and understanding. Look, people want to feel important and people want to feel like they make an impact. How can we make a 22-year-old young adult in Ukraine feel important if they can't give $1,000 a year to something? And I think that's the question that we should be asking ourselves. Because right now, that's kind of predominantly in the young adult Jewish community, what we see. We see high-level donors from the states who come, right, and come on missions and who donate and support these programs on the reasons that people traveled on Entwine to Nepal and the reason they can work at the JCC and, you know, or at the Hillel and they love it. Um, but how many examples do we see outside of that? You know, so I'm just thinking of like a puzzle picture of like what philanthropy looks like. We need to showcase more diverse ways in order to change that narrative and those associations and understanding. Um, and it means these high level missions and donors and organizations and foundations should exist. And it means we should also see, you know, 
an individual who's 27 and who's involved in different ways and who's a lay leader and who donates each year to this, this, and this, or and how they're part of it. Um, we just need to, and a lot of that exists, we just need to elevate that so it's part of everyone's picture of understanding. I'm so energized by Ed and Yana's insights on philanthropy and young RSJ's potential in this space. Connection can take the form of philanthropic giving. It can take the form of membership on boards and membership in communities, of learning service and other kinds of community service, of innovations and disruptions. But it starts with opening your eyes to your inner compass and being led by it towards the meaningful connections that help us not just to survive, but also to thrive. In closing the season, I'm sending gratitude to you for listening, for connecting with everyone's stories. Gratitude to all our guests this season whose stories helped us connect with examples of how RSJs do our avut, this rallying around a community's most vulnerable, so we may be sparked to embark on our own missions, informed by our authentic purposes. I'm encouraged by these stories because even though we as young RSJs might feel strange in some American Jewish spaces, we too have this inner compass that points towards global and local mutual responsibility towards our community members. That's our Jewishness. Learn more about our work at jdcentwine.org slash notyourbabushka.